0: Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance.
1: You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that a 100-hour MRI scan has just captured the most detailed 3D picture yet of a whole human brain. And this new thing is called a 7-Tesla MRI, has the resolution to spot objects smaller than 0.1 millimeters in your head. And... Researchers in Boston studied the brain of a 58-year-old woman who died of viral pneumonia. And they stored her brain for three years and put it into this device. And they built a custom case to do it. And they left it there for about five days of incredible scanning. And what this means for you is that those images, which no one on Earth has ever had access to before have, according to the researchers, the potential to advance understanding of human brain anatomy and health and disease. And if you want to know what's going on inside your head, wouldn't having a good picture of that matter? And when someone tells you, hey, we know everything there is to know, therefore what you just noticed isn't happening, (laughs) uh, well... You could tell them we never had a seven Tesla picture of the brain before, so how do you know that we knew everything? The bottom line is that we're always learning new things. If someone tells you that something's impossible that you've noticed and something that's repeatable, uh, what's going on here is this classical problem of science. It's called ego, and that is the ego of the person telling you it can't be done or it isn't happening. No, it's happening, and well, we're always learning. Now. What is this going to have to do with the guest on the show today? You could be saying, oh, is he going to do an MRI interview? That would be so boring, right? Um, What this has to do with the show today is that with enough curiosity, determination, and enough tech, you can figure stuff out. Who would have possibly thought? When you hear someone talk about blood sugar, you might zone out.
2: That's because a lot of us think that it's only relevant to people with type 2 diabetes. But blood sugar is a topic that everyone should understand. If you want to feel good and have energy, you need to balance your blood sugar. Research shows that even healthy people have wild swings in their blood sugar right after they eat, and spikes in blood sugar make your pancreas work harder. They also make you older, and they put you at a greater risk for weight gain, heart attack, and stroke. Here's why I'm talking about this. Bioptimizers has a new product called Blood Sugar Breakthrough. take two capsules 15 minutes before a meal. Your body will push carbs and glucose into your muscles for use as fuel instead of fat. That means you get stable energy and you don't have that post-meal crash. Better yet, you can improve your workouts and get better gains at the gym. But the biggest benefit is that it'll improve your overall health. Just go to bloodsugarbreakthrough.health for an exclusive 10% off. For 25 years, I've had a strong passion for understanding the science behind why we age and what we can do about it. One of the most groundbreaking discoveries in the last two decades is senolytics. Senolytics are plant-derived or pharmaceutical ingredients that can help your body drop old, worn-out cells. Scientists call them senescent cells, and in my books, I call them zombie cells. As you age, those senescent cells build up in your body. They live for a long time, and they eat up your energy. There is a hack for this. It's called Qualia Synolytic. Your podcast sponsor, Neurohacker Collective, created Qualia Synolytic. It eliminates those zombie cells and has a clinical study that supports its effectiveness. I really felt a difference in how my body moved after just a couple months on Qualia Synolytic. It's upped my energy level even more, and my joints feel really good. If you're over 30 and you want to use a clinically tested formula to help you feel younger, try Qualia Synolytic. To get younger now, visit neurohacker.com/dave and try it risk-free for up to 100 days. Use code DAVE at checkout to get 15%. That's neurohacker.com/dave, use code DAVE.
1: Today's guest is a very well-known. She's a born and raised Jersey girl with nothing more than passion, a laptop and a dream who created what you could call a digital empire inspiring millions, someone named by Oprah as a thought leader for the next generation. I'm talking about Marie Forleo, the CEO of Marie Forleo International. She's a best-selling author, entrepreneurship coach, philanthropist, and runs B-School, a acclaimed business training program. She leads one of Inc. 500's fastest growing companies, and pretty much she's a badass. Marie, welcome to the show.
3: Oh, Dave, thank you so very much for having me on. This has been a long time in the making, in my heart. Now, you've
1: had all sorts of cool stuff happen in your life. I mean, Tony Robbins interviewed you. Uh, Tim Ferriss had you in his book, Tribe of Mentors. What did you do to just suddenly launch to prominence like this? How, How did you get the notice of people like that?
3: Well, I think that key word there that most people assume but it's not true is suddenly. So I've been doing what I'm
1: doing. I'm so glad you answered that. People ask me that question, that pisses me off. Okay, now I like
3: you. Yeah. Okay. No, it's like 20 years I've been doing this. You know, I started my business. It was like 1999, 2000, and I have been. I always talk about myself like the turtle, not the rabbit. I'm like, oh, people are like, where'd you come from? I'm like New Jersey, and I've been doing this for a really long time. But to answer more specifically, Tim Ferriss, for example. When his four hour work week first came out, I had heard this interview with him. This was back before podcasts, right? Before they came really big. And I put him in touch with a few people that I was connected to at that time, um, a uh, friend of ours, Joe Polish, you know, some different people yeah. who I thought could help him get his message out even further. And I just emailed him and I said, Hey, your book is phenomenal. I think these folks can help get the book out even further. And then we just literally developed a friendship from there. There was nothing more magical than that. Um, and so I've known him for quite some time. And with Tony Robbins, I feel like people had just noticed my work who were around him. And then there was an opportunity that came up where he was working on a new program called the New Money Masters, mm-hmm. and um, just had heard about my work and heard that I was actually implementing a lot of things that he was talking about. And so that opportunity came up. But I'll tell you, Dave, you know, especially with Tony, I remember when I got that call, I was like, I'm not ready yet. I am certainly not ready yet. Like my website was so janky. I felt so <laughs> underqualified. But I had always really appreciated and admired and respected Tony's work. So I was like, I am not going to say no to Mr. Robbins. I'm going to get my ass on the plane and fly out there and do that interview. So um, there's been no magic sauce besides hard work and consistency over two decades. That's the honest truth.
1: The first time I heard about you uh, wasn't through Tim or Tony. Uh, it was actually from uh, Instagram. <laughs> because way back in the day, from at least from the timeline that I live in, uh, in 2015, you Instagrammed Bulletproof, like with the old logos from the coffee shop there. And I was like, wow, that, that's so cool. So I, I actually do look at my Instagram on occasion. And so I've been uh, following, uh, following you ever since and just kind of watching as uh, your voice has gotten bigger and bigger. And I, I think it's something that our audience is going to really want to understand. Now, one of the things that caught my attention too was in your business, Marie Forleo International. Uh, you talk about you creating a business and a life that you love. And you have these, I'm gonna call them principles that you talk about. Uh, we Things like we believe everything is figure outable and we do this because we love it and we're here to change the world. These are some pretty big, uh, what, do, what do you call those rules, values? What's your name for that?
3: Well, that exists on a page on our website called How We Roll because yeah. I'll tell you this really Transparently, Dave, a lot of people will come across Marie TV and they really love the online show, or they come across the podcast and they really love that. And they're like, how the hell do you make money? Like there's no ads going around. And because I'm not necessarily, you know, promoting things all the time, people were so confused with what exactly do I do? So when I did this website redesign, I was like, you know what? I got to tell people how our company rolls, what we stand for, what our values are, you know, what the whole business model is. So when people come here, their skepticism can relax a little bit and they can just enjoy what we create. But for us, those are really Principles, you know, that we run our company by. And I run a virtual team. There's about 30 of us full time now. And again, it just started. I was by myself wearing all the hats for about seven years. So that wasn't a quick journey either. But you know, we love what we do and we believe everything is figureoutable. That whole phrase, those three words, everything is figureoutable has been the driving force of my entire life. You know, it's the (laughs) topic of my new book. Um, but it saves my butt every single day. And people are like, Oh, so have you, do you have everything figured out? I'm like, Oh hell no. But I believe that I can. And that's where the magic lies. Where did you get that mindset? So my mom is a super interesting character. God bless her. She's still alive. She's about 5'3", Dave. She looks like June Cleaver, and she curses like a truck driver. (laughs) She is the most tenacious, industrious person you could ever meet. So she grew up in the projects of Newark, New Jersey, with two alcoholic parents, and she learned by necessity how to stretch a dollar bill around the block like Mm -hmm. five times. And she made herself a promise that when she grew up, she was going to find a way to a better life. And she did. And one of my fondest memories with my mom in our house in New Jersey, down the shore, Italian American household, uh, working class was sitting around our kitchen table and cutting out coupons. Like she loved teaching me how we could save money. Frugality is like her number one goal in life. So the other thing she loved was how you could save. Do you remember those proof of purchase little code bars that you could, Cut out of products, right? So she would teach me, like, hey, brands could send you all this cool free stuff, like a cookbook or utensils, if you just save up these proofs of purchase. So one of her most prized possessions ever was this little orange transistor radio from Tropicana Orange Juice that she got for free. It looked like an orange, it has a red and white stripe coming out of Mm -hmm. the side. That's the antenna. And she listened to that thing nonstop. So as a kid, I knew the way to figure out where my mom was around the yard of the house was to listen to the sound of that tinny little radio, which, by the way, everyone sends me now because they find them on on, uh, eBay. I have like a gajillion of them.
1: Oh, my God. That's funny.
3: It's amazing. Like they just keep showing up at my house. I just showed Dave, for those who are listening, um, an actual one from way back in the 80s. So anyway, one day I was coming home from school, Dave, and, uh, I hear the radio off in the distance and I'm walking down the block and it's coming from above, which was a strange orientation. And I look up and on the top story of our two story house is my mom perched like very precariously. And as a kid, it was terrifying to see your mother, like hanging out on the roof. And I'm like, mom, what are you doing up there? Is everything okay? And she's like, Brie, i I'm fine. The roof had a leak. I called the roofer. He said it was going to be at least 500 bucks. I said, screw that. I saw some asphalt in the garage. I thought I would fix it. And I was like, okay, fine. Another time I come home from school and I hear the little radio and it's coming from the back of the house. And I go to the back of the house to go say hi to my mom. And the door is cracked open. It was a bathroom. And I push it open. And there's pipes coming out of the wall and dust particles everywhere. It looked like, like a bomb went off. And I said, mom, are you okay? What's going on? She said, oh, the the tiles had some cracks in them and I didn't want it to get moldy. So I'm retiling the bathroom. So again, need to set some context here. My mom is high school educated and this is the eighties. This is pre-internet, pre-YouTube, pre-Google. One day it was the fall and I'm coming home from school and it was dark. Daylight savings had already passed. It was a little spooky. And I walk into my house, Dave, and there's total silence and blackness, which for an Italian-American household, very unusual. So I tiptoe in the house, and I'm a little afraid about what I might find. Walking around, and I hear nothing. Get this pit in my stomach. Then all of a sudden, I hear these little clicks and clacks coming from over the kitchen. walk over in the kitchen and I see my mom hunched over the kitchen table and I walk in and it's like an operating room and spread out on the kitchen table was her little Tropicana orange in like 15 pieces. And I was like, mom, are you okay? What happened? Did your radio break? And she's like, "Oh, Reed, don't worry about it. I'm fine. The antenna was off. The dial was broken. So I'm fixing it. And I finally had the courage to ask the question I had been wanting to ask. I said, Hey mom, how do you know how to do so many different things that you've never done before, and nobody's showing you how to do it. She put down her screwdriver and her pliers, and she looked at me and she said, Ray, it's not that complicated. You could do anything you put your mind to if you just roll up your sleeves, you get in there, and you do it. Everything is figure outable. And Dave, I got to tell you, it was one of those moments where I still can't even detect if those were the words she said or that's what my childhood brain heard. Mm. But it reverberated through me and it was like this little seed that got planted in my soul. And from that moment forward, it was as though... This belief, this conviction, this mantra became like the driving force for everything. So like getting out of a an abusive relationship in high school, you know, getting into college, figuring out the classes, getting jobs, getting out of debt, figuring out how to build a business when I knew nothing about what I was doing. And I was, you know, just no experience, nothing. Every single part of my life, it has been the thing that helps me pick myself back up <laughs> and mm-hmm. figure it out and keep going.
1: What? It's cool. And that's why it became the title of your new book. And you talk also about how that skill of just saying, you know, I don't know how to do it, but I'll figure it out. How it's helped you land every job you've ever had. And I got to say, when I'm doing early stage companies, and everyone knows me for Bulletproof, but I have several other early stage companies, uh, like my neuroscience stuff and the glasses company and all. And What I look for in people that I hire, especially at those young companies without millions of dollars of funding, it's people who have that mindset. Who are, you know, I don't know how to do it, but I will figure it out, and even if they figure it out and they're kinda, they don't figure it out that well, (laughs) like it's a kludgy answer, hey, they got it done, and that's gonna buy you the runway to do something else, but I have a hard time finding people like that. So maybe your book will help to grow some, how do you spot other people who have that magic outable power that you talk about?
3: It's a great question because as a CEO, it's been instrumental in our hiring process and we talk about it a lot. That's part of the reason why we have that how we roll page up, then we use that. So typically, uh, in practical terms, we give people projects or tests that we pay them for to do. And... There's holes in those projects and we're just giving them enough information that they have to think (laughs) really hard and then go figure out an answer. And so it's one of the hurdles that we set up when we bring people on our team, because we know this about business and everyone listening knows this about business. There's no playbook. There's no rule book that lasts. There are just principles that allow us to stay true to our values so that we can navigate this ever changing world, these ever changing markets, ever changing science and technology. We're continuing to grow and innovate. So you have to be nimble and innovative and creative. And so um, that's how we spot them. And we can also spot the folks that don't have this mindset. Like they're like, but what do I do next? And we're like, really, you're asking that question? It's like we love you, we honor you, we respect you, but this is not the place for you to work.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, and it it's liberating to have a group of people who are, who are going to say, oh, "I'll figure it out." Um, as I started to grow uh, Bulletproof, and and this was it was just a blog. <laughs> I wasn't really going to start a company around Bulletproof. So I didn't structure the early days that way. Uh, you know, I I had a I already had a job. I was a VP with stock options at a big company. Uh, And I I ran into those kinds of situations where where is that what do I do next what do I do next and you're like if I have to tell you this now I have ten people right your head will explode if you have to tell ten people exactly what to do and you don't scale so I would make a game I've never told anyone this I, I would make a game of providing the least possible amount of information just to see how people would fill in the gaps. Right? But I never thought of doing it during like the hiring process, which is a cool thing you're doing there.
3: Yeah, it's fun. And you know, some people really thrive in it, and they're like, hey, I did the best that I could, and here's what I created, what do you think? But I could have also done this and this. And those innovative, creative people who give us all kinds of options, we're like, hey, even if you got some of the details wrong, your initiative, your ability to be proactive, to pay attention to those details, we're like, you're our kind of people. And so, um, it's worked well for us. I mean, we've certainly made some mishires in the past and usually those are due to someone's desperation, either mine or someone on the team feeling strapped. Like, you know, we don't have enough resources and man or woman power to do what we need to do. And we're like, Oh, let's just get a body in here. And those are always costly mistakes.
1: Yeah. Warm body hires are always a bad idea. I'm I'm with you there. Um, You though you could be described as really optimistic right that everything is figureoutable figure outable sort of thing you probably liked yeah. the tv show macgyver didn't you
3: <laughs> my mom did <too. laughs>
1: i knew it had to be in there somewhere and now if if you're too young to know the show this is a show about a guy who used chewing gum and duct tape to make nuclear bombs to get out of these these things it was like a like an a team level 1980s show and it was cool uh, but it, there's that optimistic like there's always a solution uh, um but a lot of people have a hard time sharing that perspective with you. A lot of people just, they, they do not see the world with those glasses. They see it with things are limited, things are hard. What's your technique? And you do some of this in the book, but I want you to share it with listeners uh, for kind of cracking people open to that perspective so that they can connect to it and just kind of see, oh my God, it, it, it can be done even if I'm not going to do it. What's, what's the hack for that?
3: Yeah, so there's a couple things that I want to share here because this is really important. You know, skepticism means that you're thinking. I don't want anyone to just accept something blindly. And uh, everything is figureoutable as a philosophy, as a mindset, as an actionable discipline is not about being a Pollyanna, not about not facing hard truths, or glossing things over and pretending that things are okay, you know, a few things. We'll talk about some rules I set up that I think give us this mental container to actually make the most use of this idea, should you so choose to, but I also was really curious about how other people have deployed this idea in their lives, especially when it comes to some extremely difficult situations. I'm talking terminal diagnosis, death, the loss of a child, the loss of jobs, addiction, you name it. And I put out a call to the audience to see, because I've been sharing this idea, you know, for the course of my career, and I knew people had been using it. And I wanna share one story that came back. It was the first one that came back. It was from a woman named Jen. And she had watched the talk I gave, which was titled, everything is figureoutable for Oprah. It's like an 18 minute Oprah style Ted talk. And she watched it with her mom. And she said, my mom has always been trying to teach me this idea and we both got it and we loved it. And we want to thank you for that. She said, but then everything changed. My mom, who I love so much was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And then I thought nothing is figure outable. She said, but I really sat with it and I dug deeper. And as I dug deeper and I really looked at it, I realized it was, I could figure out how to get my mom care because she lives in this faraway rural area. I could figure out how to get my mom foods she could actually tolerate so that she could be as healthful as possible i figured out how to get my mom medical equipment so that she could exist and live in her home for the last 5 weeks of her life which was her biggest wish wow and so she said you know when you break the long the the big things down Everything really is figure outable. and she thanked us for making a difference in our life. And we have, you know, dozens of stories like that where people are facing some hard truths. So this is not about not facing those realities, but it is about discovering your innate power to face those hard realities with ingenuity and creativity and compassion and power. And then I also want to share, Dave, if I may, I created three rules because when I first started writing the book, I was having brunch with a friend. She has an eight-year-old son. And he said, what what are you writing about? And I told him the the title of it. And he said, well, I don't believe that. I don't think that that's true. And I said, oh, tell me more. He (laughs) said, well, humans can't grow working wings out of their backs. And I was like, you are 100% right. I said, but we humans can indeed fly. And he was like, oh that's true. He's like, well, I can't get my dog back who died when I was two years old. We can't bring him back from the dead. And I said, well, that's really true. I said, but scientists are working on cryogenics and dog cloning is happening in some parts of the world. And so we sat there and it made me realize that I needed to develop uh, a simple set of rules to give people a mental container so that they could, should they so choose, really play with this notion. Rule number one is this, all problems or dreams are figure outable. Rule number two, if a problem is not figure outable, it's not a problem, it's a fact of life, meaning a law of nature, death, gravity. Rule number three, you may not care enough to figure out this particular problem or solve this particular dream, and that is 100% okay. <laughs> Find something you are committed to figuring out and go back to rule number one. And I'll say one more thing. There's a brilliant book. You may have read it already called The Beginning of Infinity by David Deutsch, Mm -hmm. the quantum theorist. He has probably one of the most brilliant quotes that I feel just backs it all up for me. I'm like, look, you don't have to take it from me, but maybe consider the words of a quantum theorist. Everything that is not forbidden by the laws of nature is achievable given the right knowledge. And so for me, I'm like, hey. I'm going to go with this and I want to encourage people to try it before you deny it, test it, experiment, see for yourself. If it's not useful, let it go. But I would bet that it will be. That
1: that third rule is so precious uh, and that it, it just might not be worth it to solve that problem, but that doesn't mean you can't solve it. Um, And I, I've been working on instilling this in my kids and I think I've done a reasonable job. Uh, But we have these conversations sometimes, and in, in our house, we don't say you can't. We don't say it's impossible. So I, I would actually reject number two. So we have the conversation.
0: <laughs> I like it.
1: Humans can't grow, uh, can't grow wings out of our backs that are functional. I'm sorry, we have no evidence. In fact, in the scientific method, you cannot prove a can't. Right. Mm-hmm. So all I can say bring is, it, bring no it. No one's done it yet. Right. Yes. And it might be too painful and risky to be worth doing, but. It is not possible to say you can't do it just because no one has. Because if that was true, we wouldn't fly. Uh, We would never have actually gone faster than 36 miles an hour because scientists used to believe that would suck all the oxygen out of your car. Like, seriously, they believe that, right? Yes. And so... How do we... we would have
3: never gotten to the moon. Yeah. We would have never cured polio. We would have never done exactly. I'm with you. So, I am with you.
1: So like like absence of of it happening yet yeah, doesn't mean it can't. So yes, I'm really hopeful that in my life someone says, you know, I'm going to CRISPR the hell out of some wings and, and they fly right <laughs> past my hotel and I'm going to high five them on the way. Right. And like, that's just okay. I'm not going to be that guy. I got other stuff to do. Yeah, uh, And a few people will probably die trying it. And I'm gonna also thank them for their sacrifice as we learn. Right? <laughs> so I don't know. It it's a it's a nuance. But for the I like it. In the final one, and, and you said these laws of nature. Yes. Okay. Um Alan was my, my ten year old is trying to disprove this, and he goes, Daddy, you can't fly to the middle of the sun without a spacesuit. And I said, Change the laws of physics. Mm-hmm. And he's like you know, drat. Okay, fine. He didn't actually say drat, but I wish he had. Uh, and, uh, uh, but the idea there is, we don't know if we know how to change laws of physics, but I think like Stephen Hawking and guys like that have been working on that. And, and so maybe we'll get there. But like patience seems important. But I, just, I love your mindset there. And I want it your teachable thing there, though, your number three thing. Yeah. Just because you could figure it out doesn't mean you want to spend the rest of your life
3: That's right. I love that. leave it to someone else. And I think part of the reason, Dave, that I was so excited to write this book is because any of us can look out in our world right now and you can look in any domain. You can look at climate, you can look at inequality, you can look at injustice, you can look at um, war, you can look at violence. Like There are so many different areas where we need creative, innovative solutions. And I truly believe that when the diversity of skills and talents and perspectives of humanity is awakened and applied, that's the chance we have to solve some of these things and to evolve and to take our species even further into a more just and peaceful and loving world. So the deeper reason why I wanted to write this book besides helping people solve, you know, everything from like, oh, I can fix a broken toilet to creating a career or a business or solving a relationship or a health challenge was the collective power of this idea. And what happens when we start to put together our talents, our skills, our mindsets to solve some of those bigger issues and people like your son and the next generation goes like, you know what? We need some big moonshot goals. Let's work on this. This is figureoutable. outable.
1: I, I love it that you just said uh, a moonshot goals. Uh, when we finish our interview, I'm actually chatting with Peter Diamandis. Uh, <laughs> tell him I said hi. Oh, I, oh, you know, Peter is okay, cool. Yes. And Peter's been on the show, but you know he's uh, uh, the guy with the X Prize. Who? Oh, yeah, we will have private travel to space. One of the guys who, the, the ultimate figure outable guy. Yes. Oh, uh, that's so funny. Uh, moonshots just happened to pop into that. Now, you talk in your book everything is forgettable about excuses. Tell me about excuses and what you do about them.
3: So I think excuses are kind of like weeds that pop up in everyone's garden. You know, they can spring up for all of us. And I am constantly doing my best to keep a watchful eye out for them in my own life. I think the three biggest ones that most of us struggle with are not enough time, not enough money, and I don't know how. And we'll go reverse on this. The, I don't know how to is probably the weakest argument given where we are right now in culture, in terms of the access we have to information and videos and media. And the fact that pretty much for free with a few clicks on your keyboard, you can start to unwire and unpack how to do practically the first few steps of almost anything. And if you're determined and you want to keep going, you're good. But the time and money one I've seen in my career are really the two that can hold most of us back. And I like to teach people a little distinction, two four-letter words that can help us completely annihilate our excuses. And those two four-letter words are can't versus won't. You know, so many times be like, you know, and I'll, I'll, let me call one out on myself, right? Um, I can't get myself stronger and and build my stamina up because uh, I don't have the time, right? I'm too busy. I can't do it. Or, you know, I can't forgive her or I can't find time to get the writing done. There's just too many other things happening. And if we just take a breath for a moment and replace can't with the word won't, what we discover is often something much more truthful. When we say can't, it's usually a euphemism for won't, which won't means I don't really want to, it's not that big of a priority. I have other things that are more important. I'm not willing to be uncomfortable. I'm not willing to take that risk. I'm not willing to put in the effort to get that particular result. So I have a, a dream, Dave. And I know that one day it will happen where I really want to speak Italian fluently, but honestly, it's not a priority right now. And you know how I know that the other night, uh, my man, Josh and I, we had a few extra hours. We had you know, done our things for the day and we were kind of hanging out. We we're having great food and there was kind of some open space. I did not pull out my language app to learn more Italian words. Do you know what I did? I watched stranger things. Because I wanted to, it's (laughs) awesome, but it's really important for all of us not to delude ourselves. Like we are in charge of how we spend our time, our effort and our money. And I think if you don't bat back those excuses, you can just put yourself in the position of a victim as though you have no control over how you spend your time or your effort or your resources. But that little distinction between can't versus won't, if you're just like, you know what? I won't get the writing done. I won't wake up an hour earlier to get my workout in. I won't make time to do my Italian lessons because clearly I'm watching Stranger Things and that seems to be more important to me right now. I think there's a lot of freedom that comes in that. And with freedom, then you can get real about what you actually want and then attack it like a boss.
1: It's funny, earlier you mentioned Joe Polish, a mutual friend who's been on Bulletproof Radio talking. Actually, it was a really powerful interview about addiction and overcoming and, and he's like a marketing genius who used to be an addict. Well, because he says he's still an addict, but uh, uh, an amazing guy. It was in one of his workshops a, a while back. He, he said, uh, "All right, you need to make a list, especially if you're an entrepreneur with lots of ideas like me. Make a list of all the stuff you're not you're choosing not to do." And I had never done that before. And I definitely put less stress on my team when I gave them permission to say, "All right, let's keep that list and like let's agree what goes on it, uh, so that won't versus can't." Uh, and, and the other thing that I made a promise to do as I was writing Game Changers, I've largely excised can't from my vocabulary. I'll use it in a in a conscious context uh, if I'm working to create a mental mindset or something. But it's not an unconscious word because it's always a lie. Uh, it presupposes yeah. some things. Uh, and I don't tell people I, I can't make it. Right, because it, it's always a lie, and they know it's a lie, and it's totally. It sounds weird. There's there's like a sensation, and this comes from advanced meditation stuff and all. But there's a little sensation when you say something that's out of integrity, and when you say someone, "I am not going to make it," it. They understand that was a truthful statement. They're happy about it, but I actually feel clean when I say I'm not going to go to lunch with you today instead of I can't make it to lunch. Because honestly, I could. Like, I could drop everything. I could hire a private jet, and I could get my ass there. I'm just not going to, right?
3: Yes, 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 yes. This is, there is so much freedom in this. And I think until you bring... Conscious awareness to the language that you're using every day and really get real about it You feel in a position that is a bit defensive you feel in a position like life is happening, you know To you as though you're not in control of it. And I think when you really have that clarity The excuses begin to then fall away
1: Uh, Beautiful and so can't is somehow tied in with excuses you say something else that reminds me of, of Churchill uh, in, in your book. Uh, you say, fear isn't the enemy, waiting to stop feeling afraid is. And it reminds me yeah. of that, you know, all we have to fear is fear itself line. Uh, I sure hope that was Churchill, not someone else. Uh, I'm not a great his- uh, student of history, uh, but uh, whoever it was. Um, what's the deal with waiting to stop feeling afraid?
3: I think sometimes we humans have this notion that we're going to reach a state of readiness to embark upon a new project, to make a big change in our life, to um, alter our relationship in some way, or change how we're going to show up in the world. And we're going to feel ready to do it. We're not going to be afraid. We're going to feel super confident. We're going to be jazzed and motivated and like, rah, we're going to go do it. I have never seen that to be true. I think fear is our constant companion. I think it's gotten a bad rap. I think that fear outside of the context of keeping you from walking in front of a speeding train or doing something that could sincerely endanger your life, right? In most other contexts in the modern world, fear is really a GPS for where your soul wants you to go. And I like to give the analogy, you know, puppies don't speak English, neither do infants. They make sounds, they're trying to get your attention to let you know that something's happening, right? Whether it's like change my diaper, or I'm sick, or I'm uncomfortable, or I need to be fed, or I need to be walked. They're just doing their best to get your attention. And I think of fear is the same way. It's this beautiful friend that we have that's letting us know like, hey, it's not saying stop, don't do it. This is too scary. It's saying this thing, pay attention. There's possibility here. There's opportunity here. There is a chance for you to grow and get to your next level. Pay attention. But I think we just misinterpret the signal because we're so used to the evolutionary interpretation of fear, which means pull back, stop, that we haven't considered that perhaps there's another possibility. So if you stop, wait, if you no longer wait to stop feeling afraid and you're like, oh, this is just a companion. I can actually use this as some juice. Maybe this is directive and it's positive. Then all of a sudden you can take action while you feel fear. You can make that call, take that next move. You can shake, you know, on stage and have sweaty palms or a a crackly voice and be just fine. So the chapter about fear was me trying to share different frames on it to allow people to put down their armor and stop trying to fight it or like punch it in the face or annihilate it and actually see it for the gift that it is.
1: Do you have any advice for people who might be feeling fear, but don't know they're feeling fear? They've labeled it as something else.
3: Um, like what? Something bad they would consider negative. Well, no, just
1: procrastination or I'm not afraid. There's no reason to be afraid, but they're Mm. acting fearful, but telling themselves they're not. I've seen this, especially in men.
3: Mm. Well, another mantra that I live my life by that works like magic, at least for me and the folks I share it with is start before you're ready. Like every great thing that I've done in my life, I've always started before I'm ready. I do that as a trick for myself when I want to go into a cold ocean, like as I'm tiptoeing towards the ocean and it's freezing and part of my body is kind of clenching up and going like, no, I'm like, you know what? The quicker I get my butt in, the quicker I'm going to feel that exhilaration. Like I just run and start with it. I've done that with projects, books, you know, businesses, real estate, you name it. I used to. I like to throw myself into situations where I'm like, well, I don't quite feel ready, but I'm going to start. And for me, it's been a really practical way to hack through that procrastination and fear.
1: Yeah, it's, I, I like that idea. You just jump right in and see what's going to happen. Uh, at the last uh, the last uh, Bulletproof conference, my daughter, um, who is, I think she was 11 at the time, we had a three-story jump onto a stuntman cushion. Okay, so so <laughs> you you climb up on this thing and it doesn't look that tall from from the ground, but when you're on top of it and you look down, like that pad is so far below. This this was a heart pounding experience. And I told, her, do you want to come up and look at it? And she said, okay, okay. you know. But it, you can tell lots of consternation there. And then it, it was your advice there that that I shared. You know, you, you have to just you know go before you're ready. Just you know run, jump, and you know see what happens. And so. She she did it, but that tiptoe into the edge thing, like that did not work at all. So she just ran, uh, and as soon as she got off things, she goes, that was the best thing I've ever done in my life. And she ran right back up to do it again. And that night, the reason I'm sharing this is, uh, that night she said, Daddy, I want to go back and do it again tomorrow, and I want to do it over and over until I'm not even a little bit afraid each time. And, and that's because you know, when we're 10 or 11, you know that that, uh, that age it feels like there's that sense of ability to overcome fear. Yes. But how do you take something from that age and how do you bring it to someone who's 30 or 40? Do you want to do that?
3: I believe it's the same function. And I also like giving people small assignments that for them are achievable. So let's That's say, cool. okay, do you know? So it's like someone perhaps has a big, social anxiety and they feel really uncomfortable going out there and by the way, even though I do what I do and I've been doing this for 20 years like I can be the most awkward person at parties where I don't know anyone like I still have that voice in my head that's like (laughs) I'd really like to go home and sit on the couch and you know just watch something so you know that's normal but anywho. I remember giving a coaching assignment um, to one client, this is years ago, and this person just felt so uncomfortable. And I said, Hey, look, this is what you're going to do today. When you go out and she was in New York city, I said, every single person that you make eye contact, like make eye contact with people in the street and just say hello, like whether it's good morning, good afternoon, good evening, not necessarily starting a conversation, just a moment of connection. You walk up to get a coffee and you order it from the barista to say hi, how are you today? And so these tiny little moments, like these were hurdles that she could do, right? They were intimidating, but they weren't the big thing. And very much like your daughter, Dave, where she said, I wanna do it again and again and again, so I'm no longer afraid. What this particular woman did was out of training herself in the small moments the big moments all of a sudden kind of lost a lot of the scariness, the intimidation because she had been training. And I think that there's so much validity in our power to condition ourselves. And so I think for someone 30, 40 or 50 start before you're ready, find a way to do something on a small scale and practice it over and over and over again. It might seem silly to someone looking from the outside. It might feel even trite to your own mind, but there is nothing insignificant about pushing outside your comfort zone and training yourself to expand that comfort zone into a new entire universe.
1: I did an episode quite a while back about uh, something called rejection therapy. And this is a guy, and it, his name is a little bit unusual, which is why it's not coming to mind for me right now. After 600 episodes, it, it, sometimes it's hard to pick out that, that one from four years ago, but He told himself every day for a month or a hundred days or something, he was going to ask for things he thought he wasn't going to get until he got a no. And he asked for burger refills and just ridiculous (laughs) things. And they kept giving it to him. And he's like, this is actually really hard to get rejection, but it's that same thing, just little things, but it, it helped him get over that fear of rejection to the point where he was just done with it and became, you know, able to start his company and everything. So I I love it that you're talking about that similar mindset. Uh, Talk to me about the indecision trap that's in your book. What is, what's that all about?
3: The indecision trap. You know, are you talking about the, the area where people feel like, oh, I don't know which way I should go and they're kind of looking at all the options and they feel paralyzed and frozen, that notion?
1: Yeah, and the idea that you're deciding what you want is the first step to getting it. And and you talk yes. about how um, people are afraid to ask for what they want because they aren't clear about what they want. So that's what I mean by yes. decision trap.
3: So in chapter five, which is all about clarifying your dream, in my work, Uh, In my career, one of the things that I've often told people, I'm like, look, I can help you get anything you want, but first you have to tell me what that is. And that sounds like a simple proposition, but Dave, you'd be surprised at how many people have trouble with that one. Like they don't know exactly what the primary goal or project or dream that they're working on at any given moment in time. Maybe they have 50 things that they want to do, and that's part of the problem. And so I think for most people, part of the puzzle of being able to figure anything out is first identifying clearly and specifically what that thing is. There was a moment in my life, you know, where my relationship with Josh, who we've been together 16 years, it was on the rocks. And I this was probably like six or seven years ago. And we were in couples therapy. And it was like one of those times where It could have went any which way we, I was working way too much. There was just all these friction points that we hadn't figured out how to work out yet, but I got real clear. Yes. My business is important. Yes. My health is important. Those things are kind of the keep the ship running things, but getting my relationship back on track and doing everything in my power to save it, that was priority number one, that was priority number one. And I was going to spend as much time as it took read as many books as I could read, get us to as many therapists as I could get us to do as many workshops as we needed to work on until we either could heal this thing or could part and go separate ways in a healthful manner. So back to your question, I think that one of the most powerful advantages people can give themselves when it comes to figuring something out is being absolutely crystal clear about what that is. And then I'm sure you know this, we have a, an incredible part of our brain called the reticular activating system. I mean, all of us are bombarded with billions of bits of information and data constantly. We're not processing all of it consciously. So how is your brain deciding what's important and what isn't? If you've ever been in a really busy cafe or in a restaurant or at a really loud party where there are, uh, you know, lots of people talking and loud music and just so many sounds. And then you faintly hear someone calling Dave from afar and you turn your head. That's part of your reticular activating system at work, helping you filter out, what's important versus what not, what's not. So I like to think of the reticular activating system, like this magical little genie that is working 24, seven, to help you achieve what's most important to you. But that requirement that that genie needs is for you to tell it exactly what you most want. So I think most of us would do ourselves a service by being clear and specific. And that's why we spend a lot of time on that particular topic in the book.
1: Um, I think you, you nailed it. I love that you bring it back to neuroscience and it, it's amazing what you know, setting those goals the way Napoleon Hill said a long time ago. It, it matters and just being clear with yourself. You say something else in the book that I I was surprised by. And you say, you're stealing from those who need you most. What is that all about?
3: Yes. So, I have this belief that I've had for a very long time that God, the universe source, whatever you believe in or you don't believe in smurf fairies doesn't matter that there are no extra people on earth that every single one of us is here for a reason. And part of that reason is to use our talents and our gifts and our perspective to grow and then contribute back to others. And so I've always felt this. I have felt that, if you have an idea or a dream or a project or a creation or something that's in your heart that just keeps coming to you that you need to get out, if you don't do everything possible to bring that dream or that project or that creation to life, that you really are stealing from those who need you most. I think about, um, let's take you, for example, let's take the, Notion that you had when you started Bulletproof, which I don't know the whole origin story, but you know, before we started recording, I told you, I said, First of all, you even mentioned this, you know, I put Bulletproof on my Instagram because I really have gotten so much benefit from your work and your products. I have it in my kitchen cabinets here. I'm so grateful that wherever that idea came from, you have added value to my life, you've helped me perform at a higher level. So, had you said, you know what, there are enough products on the market that help people have higher performance. We don't need another one. Do you know what I mean? I've got all these other companies to run. I have all these other ideas. You would have stole something from, I'm sure, millions of us that we really enjoy, our kind of bulletproof lifestyle. When I think about some of my favorite musicians or pieces of art or films, and if one of them stopped at the thought, you know, it's all been done already. If Oprah had said, you know what? Bill Donahue really has this daytime talk show thing covered. Like we don't need another talk show host, right? Like he's really done it. He's got great ratings. There's no room for no one else. Think about all of the brilliant aha moments and books and and just tears that we would all missed out on. So I always come back to that notion that if you don't do your thing, that the world really needs, you are stealing from those who need you most. Fred Rogers has this great quote, I'm probably not gonna get it right, I need to look it up in the book somewhere, but it's a, I'll give the paraphrase version, it's like, you don't know how important you are to those who you may never meet. And it goes in that same line, so.
1: Uh, That's a beautiful quote, and yeah, I I agree. And I, I get to meet a lot of crazy inventors. Uh, because you know they say, Dave, I have this crazy thing for hacking the human body, but maybe it's worse in the health field, although it's that way in a lot of fields. They're so afraid that someone will take advantage of them uh, that their inventions never see the light of day. Like it, mm. it lives in their garage and it dies in their garage. And it's just like like, you, you did half the work, which was making it, and then the other half is telling people about it. And if you don't get both halves down, I think there's a lot of great stuff hidden in closets and attics all over the world from people who didn't understand what you're talking about. All right. I have one final question for you, Marie. And I, uh, I have really been focusing on this living to 180 thing, uh, or at least past 180, I, I wanna be really clear on that. So I've been asking people on the show how, how long do you think it's possible for you to live?
3: First of all, this is the first I'm hearing about this 180 thing. And I have to tell you, I'm super psyched. Like you just upped my game. And I'm like, I think I'm gonna jump on your train because I've been talking about 120. Oh,
1: but I've already done that.
3: I know. But I was just trying to think, I was like, I think I might by that time be like, I'm good. Like I'm ready for my next adventure. But now that no one had said 180 to me before. So you just expanded what's possible for me. So um, so was the question, how long do I think I will live or how long would I like to live? Oh, well, give me both. Okay, how long do I think I will live? I think I'm going to at least 120. Like All that's right. been kind of in my consciousness for a while, but I would seriously like to drive around with 180 for a bit and then let's revisit in like six months or so and I'll be like, I'll let you know.
1: All right, uh, that that's a, that's a fair answer. And uh, part of the reason behind this is that, um, I mean, you've, you've received wisdom from uh, you know, Tony and Oprah and you know, other, other people, and, you know, as, as have I. Um, and I feel like we have a shortage of, of old people because we forgot that age and wisdom go together. And yeah. we have a lot of people who are older today who are too tired and with Alzheimer's. and They, they actually aren't in a position to give back you know, to our last point about what the world needs. So I'm like, what if when you were old, you were fully capable? and your brain worked, and you moved around under your own power, and there weren't tubes and hospitals and diapers involved, would you then want to live to 180? And most people are like, oh yeah, I never thought of that. So part of my mission here is to just, we need a lot more village elders right now, uh, and ones who are healthy.
3: I would be a fun one, I will tell you. Like if I'm 180, you better believe that I'm be rolling around with like a little boombox or whatever we have at that time a getting orange. some dance.
1: It'll be a little I, orange, you know it.
3: <laughs> getting some dance party started. That and like I'd be like, "Look, I'm 180. I'm going to have more pizzas. They may not be the best for me, but I'm going to have them."
1: I love it. Uh, your new book, everything is figure-outable is it's just full of the right mindset for uh creating new things and for fixing things that need fixing. And and I I think it's a a very worthwhile read. And thank you for being on the show uh, on the week of your launch uh, to share it.
3: Thank you so much, Dave. And thank you for the work that you're doing in the world. And I'm actually very excited to take a read for your new book as well. Uh,
1: People can find out more about you, your book and everything like that. Uh, Probably Marie Forleo is the best one. Absolutely. Okay, M-A-R-I-E-F-O-R-L-E-O dot com. Awesome. That's
3: right. Thank you so much, Dave. Such a pleasure.
1: Have a great day. Head on over to the favorite place you like to go to buy books and pick up a copy of Everything is Figurable, And after you read it, do Marie the courtesy of taking about 10 seconds to leave a review. Authors notice reviews in ways you totally wouldn't imagine. And the research is in. I've done interviews about it. When you express gratitude, it actually improves your life. So by writing this book, Marie gave you the option to leave a review so that you could actually experience gratitude. How cool is that? So read the book, leave a review. It's totally worth your time.
0: A Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey.